0: You're listening to Dental Talk from VivaLearning.com. We're all exposed to bits and pieces of information about dental lasers. We read articles, see magazine ads, maybe watch some videos. But for the most part, the dental laser is somewhat of an enigma among us. How is one laser different than another? What model should I buy? What are the limitations of a dental laser for a given clinical procedure? What kind of healing and post-op symptoms should I expect after using a laser? Here to answer these and many other questions is an expert in the field, Dr. Scott Benjamin. And when I say expert, I really mean it because I don't think there's anyone more qualified in the dental profession to speak about dental lasers than my good friend, Dr. Scott Benjamin. And trust me, this guy knows a lot about lasers. I'm going to read a short bio because if I read his long one, you'll probably finish your entire gym workout before we get to the actual content. So here's a short one. Dr. Benjamin is in private practice in upstate New York. And has faculty appointments at several universities. He is the chairman of the ADA Standards Committee Working Group on Dental Lasers, a past president of the Academy of Laser Dentistry, and is the technology editor of the compendium. Scott, welcome to this Viva podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you very much for the invitation, Phil. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we get started, I would like to mention to the audience that we have Scott on as our guest for at least six Dental Talk episodes, all covering dental lasers. So this is the first of the series, so let's get started. So my first question, Scott, is what is the first thing a clinician must consider when selecting a laser for their practice? That's a very interesting question because very commonly I'm
1: asked that question by clinicians of they want to buy a laser, which one should they buy? And I always ask them the very same question. What do you want to accomplish with it? What are your goals? And unfortunately, the thing I hear most often from other clinicians is I don't know. What can I do with a laser? Well, the possibility of using lasers today in dentistry is almost limitless. Everywhere from prepping teeth, the osseous recontouring, the pocket decontamination, they're actually doing very simplified procedures um, that enable us to do better dentistry in a minimally invasive, more comfortable manner for our patients. So the first thing a clinician really needs to do when they're considering using laser and light-based technology in their practice is think about what their goal is. And as I tell people with all technology, identify what is going to give you the best concept and return for today, but also consider where do you want to be in the future. Um, there is a many, many lasers on the market today. And as, as you mentioned, the information out there is extremely confusing.
0: So, and the how about, idea. yeah, and, and that's, you're making a great point there. So so if I ask you this very simple question, um, which I'm sure many of our listeners probably know, but tell us, before we get too detailed into all this great stuff, tell us what a laser really does. Well, lasers are very simple. They only do two procedures.
1: They heat something up, and depending on how they control that increase in temperature within the, the target tissue, gives us the outcome we're going to have, or they can stimulate a response. As clinicians, we're very similar to using our curing lights to stimulate a chemical response within our composites, our bonding agents, our sealants, and where we're taking light energy and transforming it into chemical energy. On the surgical end of using a laser, what we are actually doing is we are using light energy, transforming it into thermal energy, and to, en- to elicit a response within the cell, and depending on how warm we get the cell and how we deliver that energy depends on the outcome that we have that we get. Mm-hmm. If we raise the temperature of of the cell between fifty and sixty degrees Celsius, we actually can inactivate it to the state that it will not reproduce, which in pocket decontamination is one of the primary goals. Also, if we elevate the tissue temperature to about above 60 degrees Celsius, we can get we start um, getting hemostasis and coagulation, which is becomes a very desirable outcome, especially if we're troughing around a crown, Mm -hmm. being able to, to control the interaction and creating the appropriate space for a subgingival margin to be appropriately isolated to give us the outcomes that we're looking for. If we heat the tissue all the way up to 100 degrees um, C, which is the boiling point of water, water turns into steam, the intercellular pressure increases, and the cell explodes. In our hard tissue lasers, what is actually happening is that rapid expansion of the, of the water as it's being vaporized disrupts the crystalline matrix uh, of the two structure and the osseous structure on our hard tissue. Mm-hmm. And so it's a matter of remembering lasers only do two things: to heat something up, or to stimulate a response with, within it. Using something like the Velscope or the the Bioscreen, those two products are actually using light energy to stimulate a response in the in the cell to give us a fluorescent response. And reading that helps us understand the composition of that tissue.
0: Right, but Velscope is not a laser, though. Correct.
1: Yeah, veloscopes and, uh, and various products that are used for screenings are, are light-emitting diodes. They are not laser and, uh, lasers. And the difference between a diode and a laser is a laser light is more organized. It's coherent, which means that it, the wavelengths travel in phase so that the peaks and the valleys of the waves actually match up, where an LED, even though it may be a very narrow band of light like a laser, it, it is not coherent, and so it doesn't have the same efficiency to accomplish the goals that we're looking for.
0: Yeah, and we're going to be talking about the use of lasers in soft tissue in another podcast, and then in a separate episode, we will be t- talking to Dr. Benjamin about use of lasers in hard tissue. So uh, stay tuned for those podcasts coming up, but getting back to to this podcast, so tell us something about the regulatory issues that need to be addressed before a practice implements a laser for clinical use what are the regulatory issues
1: well the regulatory issues using a laser are very complicated in the in north america and u.s and canada it seems to be a matter of each province and each state has their own different regulatory requirements on how it is registered the amount of training that is required to use it and various things along that line some states are very silent and they look at a laser as another modality similar to a cavatron or a high-speed handpiece. That, as long as a clinician is using it in a safe and effective manner, there are no additional regulations they have to follow. Mm-hmm. There are other states that require that you must register the laser, you must register your laser safety officer, in turn, you must um, when you're going to the state of Texas, and for example, you know, you have to in turn. Also register when you're taking it in service and out of service so they're aware of it and how you're going to dispose of it. So the clinicians need to be very concerned about the regulations within the locations of where they're practicing because it literally differs tremendously from state to state, and the scope of practice of what a dentist can do is somewhat um, similar throughout the entire area. However, what a hygienist can do is very, very much regulated by each individual state or province on what specific procedures a hygienist may or may not do. And that is changing on a daily basis. And that becomes it becomes very, very conf- confusing. So it's one of the things that is very important that the clinician checks out the exact um, situation of their location and make sure that they are following it to the T. Because unfortunately, the same regulations that control our lasers we use in dentistry are the same basic regulations that apply to all class Four lasers, including those that blow satellites out of the sky and things along that
0: line. What's the percentage of dentists practicing in the U.S. and North America, Canada, that implement lasers in their practice?
1: That's a very interesting question. You know, some surveys estimate now about a third of the practices have a laser of some sort. Now, the bigger question is even those practices that have it, what percentage of them are actually utilizing it to its appropriate capacity. Right. What I see all too often is a, is a clinician will, will buy a piece of technology, never get the appropriate education, and then it sits on a shelf and doesn't get used to the, its maximum potential, which is a, basically a disservice to the patients as well as a disservice a, uh, to the
0: clinician themselves. Now, do you think that the heavy regulatory issues is like a barrier to uh, a roadblock to getting more dentists to use this? Um,
1: I don't think the regulatory issue is as big of a concern as the educational issue. Unfortunately, presently, there are only two dental schools in the United States that actually require a laser competency to graduate Midwestern University in Arizona and Midwestern University in Illinois. And you're you're
0: you're designing those curriculums, correct?
1: Yeah, I've been working very closely with those universities and actually designing the curriculum and actually being in the clinic overseeing the students in those two clinics mm-hmm. um, where they are requiring a competency. But again, it's a matter of a, a didactic as well as clinical knowledge.
0: Why, is, why, why are dental schools not teaching this? Well,
1: part of the problem that we have with dental education today is the curriculum is already overpacked. And trying, and schools themselves have had a really difficult time getting true scientific-based information. And it was very fortunate that the farsightedness far-sightedness of the deans of those universities, um, you know, had approached me, had come to actually one of one of my training courses, and and were astounded that for the first time they were actually hearing science rather than marketing hype. And there is so much confusion out there and misstatements that are being made that universities are, are basically holding back, and which is which is a major disservice to their students. And this is something that is changing very slowly. A uh, presentation I did at idea the Dental Educators um, Association, uh, a few years ago it was very intriguing. I was asked by the deans of several schools of when in the curriculum should a laser be introduced? Um, should we wait until their final semester, senior year, where they have the greatest clinical skills? And they were shocked by my response that, no, lasers need to be introduced first semester freshman year. Wow. Because uh, preclinical. Because we, exactly. Understanding the composition of, of the tissue, the target that the laser energy is being aimed at, is more important than actually the technique and the procedure itself. As part of our anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, we're taught all about the structures of the tissue, but we're never really focused on the chemical composition.
0: It just, it just seems to me that lasers have been around for so long, they're not new, and they're not taught in the dental schools for the most part, except for two schools where you help design the curriculum, and they're so effective, and we'll learn more about that in, in, in the podcast that we're going to be doing with you. It's just surprising to me that this is not something that's been adopted by the dental schools and, and dentists are using regularly in their office.
1: Another intriguing effect along that line, there are more dental hygiene schools that are actually incorporating lasers into their curriculum today than there are dental schools. Uh, The state of Wisconsin, for example, their state education department actually has mandated that the dental hygiene schools must include laser education as part of their curriculum.
0: And here's, here's Um, here's my next question, actually. What are the educational requirements for laser use by the dentist and their team? Can you review that briefly? Well, under
1: the ANSI regulations or the uh, the ANSI standard um, Z136.3, it is recommended that all users of class 4 lasers, whether we're in healthcare, commercial defense, must have device-specific hands-on training. This is the type of, of questions that will be asked in any sort of medical legal situation. That is different than the Dental Practice Acts of the state. Unfortunately, in the ANSI standard, we do not have any, as one of the the people that that help write these these standards, we do not have any hours specified of the amount of hours that are being that are required for training. And part of the reason is that in the medical world, laser education is part of the specialty training of plastics. Um, Dermatology, gynecology. So the laser utilization and education is part of their specialty training. And so on the ANSI standard, we we have we have talked about and we actually listed that what's recommended that every person who uses a Class a laser must have training on that device that is a CE qualifying course, meaning that it would be the the presenter or the organizer of the course would be. Um, an organization that is recognized by the AGD, the Academy of General Dentistry, the ADA CERB program, or Code of the Commission on Dental Accreditation, which is where dental schools fall in. And this is the whole concept. Now, every state has different requirements in their Dental Practice Act. The state of Texas requires that all hygienists that use it must have 12 hours of training on lasers, out of which three of it must be a clinical participation type of course being being
0: provided in the standard CE format Okay. Um, so, the state of it. So do some of the it, laser companies provide quality education that fulfills these educational requirements when they're trying to sell a laser? Is that a good place for a dentist to go, even though their sales, obviously sales is a big part of it? The question they should be asking is what
1: type of education is provided? Is it CE qualified? Is it a participation course? Um, Is there a hands-on component to it? These are all questions that should be asked by the the clinician looking to acquire um, a laser for their practice. And this is a very important concept. Um, You know, you'll oftentimes hear our laser is so simple to use, you can learn how to use it on the Internet, Mm -hmm. which doesn't mean any of the ANSI requirements of education, but it's something that is very, very commonly stated out there.
0: What's the acronym ANSI stand for?
1: It's the American National Standards Institute, um, which is the um, basically they make all of the the American National Standards across the board in a variety of areas. And lasers are just one, lasers are just one component of it.
0: Right now, I'm, and, you know, it, though a periodontal postdoc program, shouldn't lasers be a big part of their education with the soft tissue aspect? It absolutely should be because I believe
1: that one of the most valuable things we can do with a laser is pocket decontamination, to literally facilitate an environment that will help the soft tissue reunite back to the tooth structure. Um, is that after the, Is that
0: after scaling and replaning? That, exactly.
1: Okay. And, the, and this is the whole idea. And unfortunately, very commonly today, is education tends to be segmented into various components. And treating periodontal disease, as we know, is a multimodal approach. It is not just one component by itself. You don't buy a laser and throw everything else away. A laser is literally considered an adjunct to those procedures to help facilitate creating the appropriate environment. To introduce this word that most clinicians were never trained at in dental school called HEAL. Mm-hmm. And the idea is we want to get our patients into a, into a position where we can get the appropriate healing with soft tissue and with our hard tissue is to create the right environment to facilitate a minimally invasive and hopefully, again, an environment to help facilitate um, the appropriate response that we're looking for. And how,
0: how does a dental practice develop the appropriate workflow for laser care? Well,
1: one of the things that, when a, with like with all technology, I always tell clinicians to go back to third grade. Think about how they wrote a book report, the who, what, why, where, when, and how, and literally walk through with their devices, you know, who are they going to use it on? Where are they going to use it? What is the appropriate ergonomics that are going to be involved in that? How is it going to be reprocessed between patients? How is it going to be appropriately located in the operatory? All of these things become important. When in the procedure that the laser is utilized and how does it help facilitate that? And more importantly than anything else is to explain the patient, why the laser is the appropriate modality to use in their situation. So always just going through a, a a trial run with how would this work into my practice? How would this work into my everyday workflow becomes an extremely, extremely important part of successful implementation. And and that's something that
0: oftentimes gets overlooked. Right. I was going to ask, on, on those CE courses that you were talking about, is workflow part of that? Because that's more of a kind of a practice management type thing. Well, it, it needs to be, but it needs to be intermixed all the way through the program.
1: Again, understanding what is the appropriate location and how do we safely position the device in the room. One of the big safety considerations when acquiring a laser is each laser has what is referred to as the nominal hazard zone which is the distance you have to, that everybody within that distance from the device has to follow very special safety requirements. And that's been one of the biggest drawbacks in the university environment has been. Many of these have nominal hazard distances of 30, 40 feet, Mm -hmm. um, and which in the open bay environment of a dental school doesn't work very well just because of the amount of people that would be occupying that space. And so a clinician really needs to identify where they want to use it, what procedures, and how this fits into their workflow appropriately.
0: Yeah, that's 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 really excellent information. So um we're gonna end this podcast uh episode now, but we are going to bring you back and it'll be a great segue because the title of the next episode that you're gonna be doing with us, and we're excited about that, is laser safety considerations with laser utilization. And we'll be doing that in a future podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Benjamin, for your time. Your information is invaluable, and uh, we look forward to having you on soon. Yeah, as always, Phil, it's a pleasure working with you.